Welcome to the Hopkins Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeski with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. Our guest today is Maria Ortiz Myers. Maria is a doctoral candidate in Library and Information Science at the School of Communication and Information at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Her research focuses on information practice, particularly collaborative information interactions and personally meaningful information experiences. The journal Library Trends recently published her paper titled The Information Practices of Parents of Transgender and Non-Binary Youth, an Exploratory Study. She joined us to discuss her research on how families of transgender youth pursue and assess information. Thank you so much for joining us today, Maria. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I'm excited to talk to you. The first question we like to ask all our guests is, can you tell us what your academic origin story is? How did you come to study library information science? I think it's a bit boring. Um, <laughs> I had a first career in a completely different industry and uh, decided to stay home with my kids for a while. And while they were in school, I started volunteering a long time ago, volunteering at my local library and stayed with that until I got a paid job and just sort of got really interested. And at the time that they started high school or maybe were in middle high school, I decided I'd like to do this for real, for real. <laughs> so I went, to, uh, I went to graduate school and uh, between my master's, I got my master's of information at Rutgers here in New Brunswick. And in the two years between that and the PhD program, just sort of being in this environment, um, I just really got very excited about the idea of pursuing these, these things with real intellectual rigor and depth. You know, I'm, I know a lot of people have this experience of Googling something and going down rabbit holes. And I, that's just, it just makes my day. I love that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> so, uh, so that's how I, I got here. Uh, and so I was a professional librarian briefly. I still consider myself a librarian, but um, the research uh, angle came by being in this sort of milieu and, and helping other academics do their own work. Yeah. I, well, I, first of all, I don't think that's boring at all. I think that's fantastic. And I, I will, on a personal note, I, I really, uh, totally understand what you're saying. When I, I too stayed home with my kids. And then when I went, when I started thinking about what I wanted to do for a job, I, my, my sort of impossible dream job was like a librarian would be like my dream job, but that's not my background. My background's in marketing and communications. And so this, this position here um, with scholarly publishing, it's the same kind of thing. I mean, I can think of literally anything and just look up and find research on it all day long. Right. And that part of my job is to do that. And it's just the rabbit holing is uh it's delicious fun. And so a follow-up question, are you, is your current line of study focused on like LGBTQ information needs specifically, or is this paper sort of part of a broader, a broader range of study for you? Yes. And, you know, all of, all of my research comes from a, a, a somewhat personal place. So I know people who are members of the community, both as I have known them as as young adults, you know, through my kids or through friend, kids of friends or other friends or mentors, other people in my life well before I had kids. Uh, so the idea of marginalization and, and the issues that, um, that young people and families really face was sort of where I started. Um, 
you know, it, it, it became clear to me as being a parent that there was a lot of parenting literature that told you how to handle things like the terrible twos or, uh, you know, rebellion in, in young people, but there was not a lot about how to coach and support and help young people who were not quote unquote, the ideal, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if your kid comes out as, as LGBTQ, uh, like that, that was not in how to parent 101. Right, um, right. And I noted that even in the public library, right? Mm-hmm. That was not mm-hmm. something that was super accessible. I should say that when when my kids were in high school, I lived in the Kansas City metropolitan area, which, um, and I live in the New York City metropolitan area. Now I live in North Central New Jersey. So that that milieu also seemed to be a little bit of a challenge, right? It was mm-hmm. the public library, so we had a lot of material for for a lot of different perspectives. But the things that got challenged the most were. Um, were issues of sexuality and gender identity, mm-hmm. especially related to children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of, as I started to think about what to research and who I wanted to serve um, and these relationships in my life, it occurred to me that this was a population that wasn't necessarily represented in, in, in library collections um, and um, in information science in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I, and I suspect, although correct me if I'm wrong, that you, your geographic experience might've, you know, the difference between the, you know, and I know you note this in your paper that it, it, it does depend where you live, what kind of access you have to things. It does. Um, yeah. I just finished an interview with a, a new, a new parent who I had never, or that is a, a, a parent I had not interviewed for this paper uh, and they lived in a in, in, in New England, I guess. And one of the things I said to me was, oh, I'm a little less worried about it because I don't live in Texas or I don't live someplace else. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to say, I don't want to give anyone the impression that, that there are not uh, LIS scholars who are interested in LGBTQ people. There are, we have mm-hmm. some really great ones. What I was, what I'm specifically concerned with is, is young people and their parents so that I'm looking at the collaborative Mm-hmm. Uh, inter- interchanges there. And that's a little less covered. That's an excellent segue because I want to make sure that our listeners sort of understand um, the ideas behind your research. Your study examines the information practices of parents of transgender and non-binary youth. Can you explain um, for anyone who might not be familiar with it, what, what that means? What, what are information practices and why are they important? Sure. So in information science, um, for quite a long time, there's been a lot of uh, theorizing around the idea of what we call information behavior, the Mm -hmm. things that people do with information, how they look for information, how they evaluate and assess whether it's uh, suitable for their needs, um, how they store information, that kind of thing. And somewhere I'm going to say in the 90s and early 2000s, there began to be something of a an opening up of the conversation about the idea that people don't think about information in a silo, right? We do this within the context of our lives. So we are, we're social beings. We have culture embedded in us in some way. Uh, We have different levels of access depending on our education and our economic standpoints on where we live. Um, And so there needed to be some sort of, um, 
an examination of how those all come into play. Right. And, and so the term that started to, to that gets applied to that uh, discussion are information practices. And it's, it's not simply a way of um, recording and documenting what people do, the actual steps, there is mm-hmm. that. But it's, um, it's really a looking at the broad experience of, 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 of what happens when we engage with information. So um, you and I, or many people, you know, we, we certainly do Google something, right? We, we know how to Google, we know how to scroll through our phones, we talk to people to get information. Um, but we make decisions about each of those depending on any number of things, how familiar we are or um, how comfortable we are. Um, there's also information, of course, that we get that is not quite as tangible, mm-hmm. right? So there's a, a fabulous researcher named Anne-Marie Lloyd, whose work really kind of inspired me. And, and Anne-Marie Lloyd talks about information literacy that comes from the corporal experience, oh, interesting. Um, touching and, and sensing and learning by doing things. Um, and so, you know, when in your notes, when you, you said, um, you know, we, let's, let's use our cameras if we can, because that's informative, right? right. You can yeah. tell, you can look at my face or, or listen to my voice and, t- and see what, you know, get a sense of what's going on and, and right. make sense of that. And so practices are, are kind of take those all into account as well. Um, and they're very fixed in time, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, this can change um, tomorrow or uh, a year from now. So that's, that's, I suppose that's what practices means. They're important because, um, because it's our, our experience of information is much more complicated than simply, um, you know, search words we put into right. or, yeah. and get out. Right. Yeah. And, on, and on both, I'm really, I'm interested in how you phrase that too, in terms of sort of the, what we do with it also, because it's not just it's the, it's the, how you make the decision to look up the information, how you're looking up the information, who you're bringing into that decision. And then what have, you know, it's, it's, it's right. so much more comprehensive than it sounds. Right. It sounds right. very sort of like, what's your search string? Um, but it's right, not, right. there's a lot more sociology involved. Yeah, exactly. Your study involved interviewing uh, several sets of parents of, of transgender uh, children and how they, how they sought out those information practices and what they did in, in the time that they were learning about their children's transition. Mm-hmm. What were mm-hmm. the main conclusions that you drew from the study? I think the thing that impressed me most about doing this study is how emotional uh, this work was, right? These folks were, were extremely supportive of their kids, but, but regardless of their age, like I, you know, I think the oldest one was in their sixties and the youngest parent was maybe late thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of them were, were very engaged with this idea that they wanted to help their kid in whatever way they could. They just had varying levels of comfort with the concept. This, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use one of their terms as new, new conception of gender. Right. Mm. Um, and, uh, and they understood that this was on them. This was one of the most important, I think that, that it was on them as parents to, to go get that information, even though this whole process conversation, whatever you wanna call it, started with a declaration from their young person. Mm-hmm. Um, they took it on themselves to go pursue this information. Uh, and that that was a very emotional process. So what they encountered, it was not as, you know, if, 
we make all kinds of important decisions and use that for and rely on information to help inform those, but they're not often very emotional. They don't strike right. us in the heart mm-hmm. of if I do this, something bad will happen, or if I don't do this, right? What the what, ramifications what, of the seeking of the information? Exactly. Uh, so that was one of the main takeaways that this is a very emotional process. And I don't know, I don't feel like we engage with emotion, um, the emotional ramifications of information very much in, in this field. One of the important takeaways that, that kind of surprised me was the way the young people really relied on an object, some, some, some other way of relay of relaying information that was not verbal, Mm -hmm. even though all of them said they felt like they had great relationships with their kids. Um, and I, I believe them because their kids told them mm-hmm. uh, about, came to them at some point about their gender identity. Um, it was just such a, it was so fraught that they, many of them said, well, the only way I can, I can really give you this information without feeling too much is by writing it down. Right. So they created yeah. these objects, right? So they were notes Um, typically, yeah, yeah, text messages, um, the index cards that one of them that really struck me too. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I loved it. And also I didn't expect so many of them to do it. I I mean, it was a small study, but it was quite a few of them who were like, yeah, we, we relied on, on communicating on, on sharing this information via, at least at the beginning via these, these objects. So that was, I think, a pretty important conclusion. Yeah, I, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because that was definitely the part of your paper that that emotionally struck me almost. You know what I mean? Just reading it, I could feel that. I could say, oh, you know, I remember being scared to tell your parents something, yeah. even, even way less life-changing and, you know, important yeah. and critical than this. And and that fear and that uncertainty about, about that immediate confrontational conversation. Right. right. Um, when there's just, there's too, it's like, there's too much change happening in your head and you don't know how to verbally respond. And exactly. I thought, I thought, wow, we should, as you know, we should think about that. I mean, maybe it was just me. I thought I should really think about that in terms of like writing things, you know, people always say, write it down. It'll make you feel better. Um, right. Right. But I was so, I can't remember what the name of the, or the pseudonym of the, of the, the child in the study, but saying that they had, they had written it down Oh no, they had texted their parents and said, I'm texting you this, but I don't want to talk. I'll tell you when I'm ready to talk about it. And I thought, what agency does this young person have to say, I have to say this, I will tell you when I'm ready to discuss it. Yeah. I mean, wow. I was like, I I'm 45 and I don't know if I'd be able to have, have that <laughs> level of like, self, you know, just knowing what you, what your boundaries are and being able to articulate that. I was, I yeah. was just wowed and really moved. And that was Tyler. And Tyler was in college when he sent that, Mm -hmm. but, but you're absolutely right. I mean, college is still very tough, right? It's the first time you're getting space away from your parents and you're supposed to be an adult, but you're not exactly know how to be an adult. (laughs) And you know, you're exactly right. And, but right. And, but my youngest, the youngest uh, uh, person, Fallon, who, who I think, think if I'm remembering correctly was about 10 and a half or 11 when they first started this this uh, conversation with their parents um, they used a note and essentially said the same thing right like I'm, I'm giving you this note but like um, there's there's a lot here and I just I I want you to know but I'm not sure what else to say <laughs> um, so yeah the agency was pretty um, pretty impressive 
And I'm also struck by how that the, the, the picture painted from all of the conversations that you relay in your in your paper are are sort of a you know, you think about things like this about transition and, and someone, you know, transitioning into gender, it just being this kind of enormous, all-encompassing event where the, right. the the thing that I took away from your paper and listening to these parents was this, it felt more just like this kind of slow sprinkle of, 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 you know, there's the initial, the initial conversation, which like we said, you know, frequently was coming through an, a printed object or, you know, communication mm -hmm, somehow, mm -hmm. but then it was like this kind of slow, gradual back and forth, learning to dance kind of situation. Um, and I think it was, it was helpful for me to read that because I feel like thinking about big things in your life, you know, they always feel like this ripping off of the bandaid or burning of the bridge behind you. And it's like, no, it's, there's, there's, there's steps and there's small conversations that happen over and over again, that build, uh, you know, the library of information. And I, I was really sort of struck by that about how it wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, and granted, you know, like you said, these are all parents who are supportive of their children who volunteered for a study. So it's not going to be, you know, these volatile situations that we're also familiar with, but I was, I was really taken with the, uh, like I said, almost the, not piecemeal in a negative way, but just kind of how it slowly builds upon itself, how it just sort of organically grew. I'm glad that you say that because I, I, I wasn't sure if that quite came through, you know, in retrospect, you write the paper and you go, oh, did I say this? I want to make sure that that came <laughs> right. through. Uh, there's a page limit and a word limit. <laughs> right, uh, right. But you're right, right? Because so there was this, uh, I think I can, uh, I'm accurate when I say for the parent, this was a major event, right? This whole right, this, yeah. this initial discussion and, and in their minds, um, this was a big thing to deal with after that on their own, mm -hmm. but, but you're right. Like there is a small, there's a progression, certainly, especially for the younger ones on, you know, uh, um, on how, how they come to know themselves, how their family comes to know them, how they all get used to the idea. And then what, what changes with the next stage of their life, particularly the younger ones. I think it was um, Jack's parents, uh, who even in that mom, uh, was a, was a school counselor. And so she, you know, she, I don't think she was a typical research participant at all in that, you know, or at least for my purposes, she's not a normal, a quote unquote, normal mom from that perspective. Right. Cause right. she had knew, she knew about, um, about things that, that young people experience, but for her own sake, she said, you know, there was a lot I didn't know and a lot I wanted to know, but also Jack, Jack came out at 14 and he, you know, there's still the whole stuff with 14 year olds, like they are still 14. Right. Right. <laughs> yes. um, so I'm, um, yeah. And, and that was, she, you know, she was like, I know we don't have this information yet, but we're not there yet. So when mm. we get there, we'll do the same thing. And I, I think Elise and um, their daughter had the same sort of conversation and they were a little older, maybe about 17, 15, 16, 17 in that area. Yeah. So thank you for saying that. I'm glad, I'm glad that came through. Yeah. And, and maybe I, again, like just to tie it in, I have an 11 year old. And so it's sort of like the conversations I'm having with my 11 year old, that seem like breathtakingly, I just, you know, I'm like, I can't believe I'm talking about these things. Like this kid is almost a grown up now and everything right. feels impossible until it's not. And then you just right. kind of look, look back in retrospect and you're like, oh, it's it, the days are long and the years are short. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, and it was it was heartening. And I'm I'm glad you said that. 14 is 14, no matter no matter what. <laughs> it's gonna yeah. stink no matter what's going on. Yep. Yep. There's yep. no getting yep. around 14 ever. Yeah. Um, 
Um, I wanted to know in terms of sort of practical implications, um, sort of broader research or, or you know, library information science, um, what, are, what does your study and studies like yours, what do they shed light on and what can they help to change? I think this particular population, for this particular population, it sheds light on the, on the gaps that exist in terms of parenting literature, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, I, I've been in, in this PhD program now for almost five years and the sort of attitude around gender identity and young people has never been as, or it wasn't as severe, I thought, at the mm -hmm. beginning when I entered the program as it is right now. So um, what I'm hoping that it, it communicates is that these are parents who are genuinely interested in, in helping their kids develop healthy self-esteem and um, get to a uh, get to a place in their lives where they're comfortable in their own skin mm -hmm. and are fully capable, productive, if that's a goal, members of society, right? They're just parents like everybody else. Right. Um, I think it also sheds light on these interactions, right? Like part of this whole conversation is that we, each of these parents took what their kids said seriously. They mm. didn't say you're too young. You don't know. They may have thought it, but they didn't say it to their kids. Right. That's therein, um, lies, therein lies the difference. Right. Yeah. They, you know, they went on and did their research to say, are they too young? Maybe they're not too young. Right. And, and I think um, the collaborative work that they do, right. This engaging the, the kids, giving the parents information when they asked for it, when they needed it and um, sort of working together to get the care that they need that, I hope speaks to the fact that we, that young people are capable of, of expressing their, their identity um, quite well. And, you know, I don't, I am not a doctor or a psychologist. I don't know if these things will change, but I know that for the moment, or at least in this period, this is what these families seem to need to, to stay together and work well as a team in terms of support systems, that's really, really important. Mm -hmm. I, I think to answer your question more directly, I think it puts the family, it, it, it presents the family as an interesting um, setting for information research. Like mm -hmm. we don't look at, um, when we talk about collaborative research, most of the time it's on uh, work teams. Mm -hmm. um, and and that I, that's, that's valuable, uh, but I think once again, we get to this idea of, of, of practices and the sort of sociological uh, reckoning um, the discipline is coming to is that we exist in all of these different planes and mm -hmm. we are all part of a family of some sort, whether it's our family of origin, a family we create. Mm -hmm. um, and that these, these families work together is, is an important and how they work together is, is really beneficial studying how they how they work together is very beneficial absolutely and 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 it I, sort of like the reverse of a rabbit hole sort of the spiraling out of that was that i was struck by some of the conclusions you were talking about what you just said in terms of the family as a unit and how information is passed back and forth and how you know you had a small sample size but regardless most of the situations in the family unit it was the mother doing the primary amount of of labor in that in information seeking and what does that say and how mm -hmm. you know there was there's just i could i could feel my my brain doing those little lightning strikes of mm -hmm. oh, well that's a whole other study you could do mm -hmm. um so it is really interesting and also information um 
guarding, you know, in terms of protecting right. their children and, yeah. and, and the, the inverse, <laughs> getting the information right. for them and also kind of doing the bubble and the mama bear situation and, and keeping them safe from, you know, from misinformation and from, and yep. from people who seek to harm. I just, it was, it, there was a lot of mental tangents for me personally reading the paper. So I wanted to say thank you for that. You're welcome. And then actually that management, that, that sort of secure management is something I hope to tease out a little bit more in this, in my dissertation, but um, we'll see. There's so much there. You're, <laughs> you've hit on my problem is that I'm sort of trying to limit the, the threads the that I go pulling <laughs> yeah. on in this right. next phase. So for parents and loved ones of transgender and non-binary youth, do you uh, personally have any recommendations or resources that might be a good good first start websites or books, resources of that nature? Depending on where you are, um, I you know in terms of in terms of how to deal with schools and things like that, I uh, I really like the Trans Youth Equality website, mm, Trans okay. Youth Equality, mm-hmm. um, the National Center for transgender equality is also pretty informative. Um, I mean, those are very oriented toward law and legal sort of stuff. Um, there's uh, Gender Spectrum has a website. They're an organization out on the West Coast. I can't remember if they're California or Seattle, but um, they have a website with um, with a lot of blogs that pursue all kinds of different topics. And that that is very, um, as a parent, I found that sort of really accessible and kind of comforting. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that's a good site. As a scholar, I have really valued some books that I came across that are written, that describe other research studies, but they're, I think that they're written in a very accessible manner as well, but that could be very helpful to other, to parents. So mm-hmm. um, Tay Meadow, uh, their book, Transgender Kids, mm-hmm. um, is fantastic. Anne Travers, I think Anne Travers is a Canadian researcher, but um, the book is available everywhere. Their book, The Trans Generation, mm-hmm. is also really helpful. Um, Diane Aronsaft, I think I'm saying that correctly, Aronsaft is a psychologist and researcher, and they've and she's written two books. And the one that I used most in my work was It Takes a Gender Creative Parent. Mm-hmm. And I know that she wrote one before that, and that's all about. Um, the sort of emotional experiences that parents with trans and non-binary kids go through and um, just really approachable writer, very, mm-hmm. very helpful. Um, and then Rachel Brill, B-R-I-L-L, um, is another researcher. And I, I think they've probably been doing, Aaron Saft and Brill have probably been doing this kind of work for uh, quite a while because their books were published in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Okay. I might have that wrong, but certainly more than a decade ago. Yeah. You did mention your dissertation and I wanted to ask for my last question, what, what are you working on now and what's next for you research-wise? So right now, this very moment, I am working on the proposal for my dissertation. So right. just as, as I said, um, you know, I, I've identified a theory I believe I want to work with. Um, Amelia Gibson, who is at the University of North Carolina, uh, published a couple papers a few years ago on information marginalization, right? Mm-hmm. And the institutional sort of uh, obstacles that present themselves when people are looking for information. And uh, when I first encountered it in, in, in the PhD program, it seemed like a great contribution that like just didn't have anything to do with me. And the more I think about it and the more the news comes into my orbit, I think, wow, if there isn't a case of information marginalization, 
uh, among, for parents with trans kids, uh, I can't make a case for anything. So that's one of the things I'm working on. Uh, and uh, I'm recruiting, I'm gonna get ready to recruit more parents and kids. I'd like to talk to, um, you know, pairs of them because one of the things that happened in this paper was I didn't get the, the perspective of the young people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like that's uh, really valuable to capture. Uh, and then, you know, once that gets approved, hopefully this in the next couple months, doing dissertation research so I can, so I can put it out there. Another thing I, I wanted to mention before we ended is that um, most research about trans kids and their families that I found mostly features white middle-class families. Mm-hmm. And there are a ton of reasons for that. Um, I have a great dissertation advisor at Rutgers, Caitlin Costello, who is also the co-author on this paper. And they have really kept pushing me to, to keep foremost in my mind the question of how we can highlight the role of intersecting, intersecting identities mm-hmm. for these families. Um, Black youth, Latina youth, and other young people of color who are also trans encounter, as we know, an astonishing amount of violence and and discrimination. Um, So clearly not every family has the same challenges. Um, As a discipline, I feel like LIS needs to feature the information practices that these, these children and families perform because the stakes in terms of their safety, the freedom of expression, and healthcare are really heightened for them not just getting information that's appropriate for their needs, but ways of protecting information about themselves and their privacy. Mm -hmm. Um, Anne Travers wrote that families of trans youth live with incredible precarity. I think when we study and highlight folks that have to struggle with precarity daily, we learn better how our information systems, you know, the books, the devices, the technical platforms, the procedures we use every day serve some folks better than others. And we can try and fix those. If I do anything at all with my work, that's what I hope to show. Excellent. Well, I'm really looking forward to following your research. Um, This paper is really fascinating. And I mean, I think just as a, just as a, for parents writ large, I think it's, it's good reading because it really, just thinking about those things in terms of information, how you bring it in, how you share it, how you both benefit, uh, just that, that collaborative nature, that back and forth. I just, I, 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 it left me with a lot of food for thought. So thank you so much for your research and your paper. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm glad that, um, I'm glad that it was meaningful to you in some way. This podcast is a production of Hopkins Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu.